Hello, this is Joshua Mack from Cornerstone Bible Church, and we're talking marriage and family. And uh, lately we've been talking specifically about purity in marriage, pursuing sexual purity in marriage. Obviously, the sexual relationship is one that God gave to us for our joy and for our good. And yet, unfortunately, we all know that many people have taken this gift that God meant for good and uh, used it for evil. And uh, sexual sin has devastated many lives and many uh, families. And uh, that's not just true outside the church, unfortunately. It's also true within the church. And uh, we began to think a little bit about why. Why is it that people who say they're Christians uh, struggle with this sin in such significant ways? And uh, one reason is because uh, sometimes people who say they're Christians aren't Christians. And that's just a reality. But that's not the only reason, of course. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to write to people like the Colossians, the believers there in Colossae, and say, put to death sexual morality. Real Christians struggle with real sins. And so we have to think about, uh, well, how do we overcome this sin? Even as Christians, we're going to be tempted. And uh, this is a sin that has serious consequences and can quickly destroy a marriage. And also, I guess, to come at it from the other angle, obedience in this area produces a lot of joy. And so we really want to know how to honor God in this area of our lives. And we said uh, last time we talked that it takes a commitment, takes a, a, a radical, absolute commitment. Paul says you have to put to death what is earthly in you. And so uh, putting to death is a pretty intense language. It means that you have to make a decision that this is uh, an area in your life that you are going to take seriously and you're going to war, war really, against sexual sin. And of course, uh, that's a start, but you're not going to overcome sexual sin simply by uh, wanting to overcome sexual sin. Uh, you need to be willing to do whatever it takes, but you also need to have uh, some sort of strategy you're going to fight against sexual sin, you need to think about how you're going to fight against it. And I thought I might share with you some ideas that I find helpful in pursuing purity in my own marriage. And uh, the first step, I guess you could say, is just to make sure that you are enjoying your salvation. It's interesting, when David uh, talks about repenting of his sexual sin in the Psalms and as he cries out to God for transformation in Psalm 51 specifically, you notice if you look there that he doesn't spend a lot of time asking for help with his sexual desires. He's uh, sinned, he's repenting, and he wants to change. So he's asking God for help. And when he does, he doesn't simply ask, Lord, please take these sinful sexual desires away from me, which isn't a bad prayer, but that's not what he says. Instead, he cries out to God that, God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. And uh, I think that's because, as someone has said, uh, sexual sin is a symptom, not the disease. People give way to sexual sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. 
And I, that's, that's just so important. And maybe I can even say it again. Sexual sin is a symptom, not the disease. People give way to sexual sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ, which means in the struggle against sexual temptation, one of the most important things you can do is work on developing a deeper appreciation for what God's done for you in Christ. And it's gonna be hard to do that if you don't know Christ. If you, uh, if you, if you go to think about Jesus and you have nothing to think about, you're in trouble when it comes to sexual temptation. So you uh, can fight against sexual temptation by working on getting to know Jesus better. Because when you're uh, tempted, you're gonna have to really fix your attention on him and what he's done for you. John Piper, he has a little acronym that he uh, uses for fighting against sexual sin called Anthem. And I can't remember what the A and the N stand for right now, but the T is turn your mind toward Christ. And the H is hold it there. He says, hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Here's where many fail. They give in too soon. They say, I tried to push it out and it didn't work. I asked, how long did you try? How hard did you exert your mind? The mind is a muscle. You can flex it with vehemence. Take the kingdom violently. Be brutal. Hold the promise of Christ before your eyes. Hold it. Hold it. Don't let it go. Keep holding it. How long? As long as it takes. Fight. For Christ's sake, fight till you win. If an electric garage door were about to crush your child, you would hold it up with all your might and holler for help and hold it and hold it and hold it and hold it. If you're going to overcome uh, sexual sin, it's going to start with uh, making sure that you really are enjoying Jesus. Are you enjoying Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a friendship with Jesus? Then two, uh, make a commitment to actually avoiding temptation. It's not like this is really rocket science, but in Romans 13, 14, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. In other words, don't even give your sinful desires an opportunity. It's not uh, really hard to avoid things you don't want. I don't think, uh, for example, that I've eaten a pea in probably over 20 years because I hate peas. Or at least I did when I was younger. I can't really remember what they taste out taste like anymore. But I, I, I search out food to make sure there are no peas in them before I eat it because I don't want to eat peas. I don't desire them. The problem with sexual temptation is that sometimes our flesh does want it. And so we give ourselves opportunities to engage in it. And that's why you have to work hard at this. You have to know, even as a Christian, you have some wants you don't want. Your wants are broken. And so times, sometimes you want things you shouldn't want. And one way to keep yourself from wanting these things so much or being deceived by them is simply staying far away from them. If I had a, uh, a strange desire for anything that would kill me, I wouldn't have it in my house. I wouldn't put myself in places where I might be tempted by it. There was a man who wrote a book uh, it was called Hedges, I think, Loving Your Marriage Enough to Protect It. But he called that book Hedges because he believed uh, married people needed to put some hedges around their marriage to protect themselves. 
I think he mentions uh, six hedges. He says, avoid spending too much time alone with anyone of the opposite sex to whom you may be attracted, even on business. Be careful about giving personal compliments to unrelated people of the opposite sex. Be careful about flirting with anyone but your mate. That's pretty obvious, I think. To protect yourself from immorality, you should uh, review and reflect on your marriage vows and what you actually promised when you made them. To protect yourself from impurity, you should make sure you spend quality and quantity time with your mate and continue to cultivate your friendship with your mate. Never take each other or your relationship for granted. And he's got a few more, but I hope those are, are pretty obvious. If you're going to overcome sexual temptation, uh, you need to avoid it. There's um, someone who has said, if you are standing and fighting sexual temptation, you've already lost because the Bible says to flee. <laughs> so you, the only proper response to sexual temptation is to run. We, uh, third, need to work at remembering the truth. So sexual temptation is a liar and it is actually an amazing liar. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, it's like with sexual temptation, uh, you're standing there and uh, someone's standing there and they're watching people jump off a cliff and then they go to the edge of the cliff and they see uh, the person at the bottom just dead and then they see somebody else jump off a cliff, dead. Somebody else jump off a cliff, dead. And then someone comes and tries to convince them to jump off the cliff and they believe them. You would think, man, that person is a great liar. I mean, terrible, but he's a great liar. If he... The person can see all these people jump off the cliff and die, and then that other individual still convince them to jump. Wow, that guy can really deceive. Sexual temptation is like that. We, we, we've seen the consequences of sexual temptation, giving in to sexual temptation, and yet uh, still uh, people are fooled by it. And so uh, because sexual temptation is such a good liar, uh, you need to know the truth well. That's pretty much the only way that you can live with a liar is knowing the truth well. Uh, and so what you might do if you're struggling with sexual temptation is write out a list of truths, which you can be sure of. And when the temptation becomes intense, bring out those truths and work through those truths one by one, saying to yourself, this is what's real. This is what's real. It's kind of like you need to fight to see straight. Sexual sin tries to blind you and you're trying to keep your eyes open and see. And the way you do that is by continually speaking truth to yourself. And you can get creative about this. You, you could write out a list of the terrible consequences of immorality and review it. You can select some verses maybe to, uh, that talk about fighting sexual morality and memorize them. Uh, you might write out a commitment to God, a, a commitment to purity. But whatever you do, you need to work at remembering the truth. And it might be that you actually need help. And uh, this is one uh, particular temptation. If you're struggling with this, it's, it's very hard to win this battle on your own. Um, and kind of unnecessary, especially when God has placed you in a church with uh, fellow soldiers who are all involved in the same battle. And so if you really want to overcome, step out in faith and uh, seek to develop a relationship with someone else 
who will be willing to call you back to the truths you know and love when you're forgetting them and not loving them so much. And of course, uh, what you're doing there is not placing all the responsibility on them. Like, okay, I told you I struggle, now you fight this battle for me. But you're uh, looking to them, you're actively looking to them to encourage you when you need it. Fourth, maybe a fourth part of your strategy needs to be uh, focusing on the eternal. And I hope you don't think I'm being impractical here because I think this is actually some of the most practical kind of stuff there is. There is this place called heaven and there is this place called hell. And the fact that both places exist should radically impact the way you think about absolutely everything, even sex. Because a lot of what Christianity has to say about this world and living in this world doesn't really make sense unless this world isn't all there is. And that's why one of Paul's primary motivations when he talks about purity has to do with eternity. And one of the ways he motivates people to pursue holiness is by reminding them of the consequences they'll experience if they don't. Like first, they won't go to heaven. For example, he writes, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, there's a time coming when God is going to rule in a visible way over the new heavens and the new earth and where everyone who is truly saved will receive a beautiful, glorious inheritance from God that is too big for us to describe with words. God's people are going to be in God's place, living under God's rule, experiencing God's presence, and enjoying God's blessings forever. That's what we're waiting for, the kingdom of God. It's coming. And yet Paul says there's no one who's committed to sexual morality, who's habitually sinning in this way, and impure and greedy and unrepentant about it, who will enjoy this inheritance. Which is significant. You should feel the weight of that. If you think about heaven... It, it, and you think about health. Maybe start with heaven because it's hard to conceive just how good we're going to have it in heaven. The happiest person on earth feels more sorrow in one minute than believers will feel in heaven for all eternity. And yet we still sometimes get so focused on the pleasure we think we're missing right now that we forget the indescribable pleasure we're waiting for as Christians. That is crazy immaturity. And really, that's many people's life. I have to have everything now. I have to have everything now. I have to have everything now. And so if we are going to overcome sexual impurity, that, that, that perspective has to change. We need to look forward to what's coming. And if we're going to look forward to heaven, we are going to have to think about it. Uh, if you have uh, no desire for heaven, if in pretty much every area of your life you're living for now, and you're making choices mostly based on the now because heaven doesn't seem real or desirable to you, it's going to be difficult for you to say no to sexual temptation because one of the whole motivations we have for obedience in this area is the hope of eternal life. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like if your whole life is about now, then it doesn't surprise me that you're going to really struggle with sexual temptation. 
Um, because one of the big motivations that we have to overcome is that we're going to heaven. Saying no to sexual temptation is a sentence in a paragraph. And the paragraph is about learning to say no to certain things I want to do now, perhaps, because of what I'm looking forward to later. And so if all you hear is say no to sexual temptation without the paragraph about what you're looking forward to later, the sentence won't make much sense. And what's more, that paragraph has to be set in a chapter that has something to do with how sweet heaven's going to be. That, or else that paragraph about saying no to certain things I want to do now because of what I'm looking forward to later isn't going to make sense. And it's not just that the sexually immoral won't go to heaven. It's that they will experience the wrath of God. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul's like, don't be deceived. I don't want you to fall for lies. And uh, he has to say that because it's very common for the world to treat sexual sin as if it weren't a big issue at all. Even in Paul's day, he's having to say, don't be deceived. Because what the world's saying about sexual sin is just empty words, and, and you need to know it. The world is constantly saying sexual sin isn't even sin. God doesn't care. And that's not surprising. The world is going to minimize the seriousness of sexual sin because sexual sins have a special tendency to lead people toward hell. Hear me now, because I think that's the point. All sins deserve the wrath of God. But Satan seems to use sexual sins, especially to lead people towards eternal death. You see this all throughout scripture, actually. It's like God puts a big old warning sign on sexual sin. You better seriously watch where you're going because if you close your eyes for a second, you could end up in hell. Proverbs 7, Hebrews 13, 4, 2 Peter 2, 1 Corinthians 10, Verse eight, and uh, I could really go on and on, but the point is this is a big deal. You want to be scared of sinning in general, but you should especially be scared of sinning in this way because God takes this sin so seriously and because there's a great temptation for you not to. And if you don't take this sin seriously and begin to give in to this particular sin, one of the things that makes this sin so dangerous is that it is particularly blinding and uh, deadly, which is why so often you find uh, when people are having intellectual doubts, uh, this isn't always true, but it's often true. You'll, you'll hear people deconstructing or something like that. And sometimes they'll have all these fancy doubts. And, and yet uh, later you realize, no, they're also just really struggling with uh, sexual sin and uh, sexual sin that's not so surprising because sexual sin is very deceptive uh, six you need to reach out for help and I think I mentioned this one uh, before but if you're going to overcome sexual sin uh, develop friendships with others um, that you can talk to about this and help each other as a husband and wife. Then I think maybe I could just finish with this one uh, in terms of developing a strategy for fighting against sexual sin. Fight being selfish. 
Um, sometimes when a person's struggling with sexual sin, uh, they think of that as the only sin. Uh, but it's really not. It's usually the fruit of other sins, or at least connected. And it's often connected to the sin of selfishness. So you're, you're not thinking about other people's pleasure and their, their best. You're thinking about using those people to please yourself. So when someone is struggling with sexual temptation, it can be like a warning bell in your mind that perhaps you're at the same time struggling with worshiping yourself, which is why one step you can take to fight against sexual sin is to think carefully about how you can serve the people around you instead. A a life of self-sacrificial love is the opposite of a life centered on sexual morality. A life of self-sacrificial love is the put on. Self-sexual morality, filthy talk, greed is the put off. Love is the put on. And so if you struggle with sexual sin, realize that sexual sins tend to be the fruit of a self-centered lifestyle. Sexual sins tend to flow out of a root and the root is a self-centered lifestyle. And so in a sense, a struggle with sexual temptation is like a warning sign. As someone is struggling with, say, lustful thoughts, that should be like a ding, 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 where they say, what's going on in my heart? And what they'll probably see going on in their heart is that they're becoming more and more self-centered which is part of what makes sexual sin so serious. And that's why in Colossians chapter three, verse five, Paul actually describes it as idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping someone other than God. And usually that someone other is yourself. And so at the root of sexual sin is self-worship. And so what's happening when you're tempted with this overwhelming desire for more, 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 where you feel like you have to sin against God to get what you want, is that you really want to be on the throne of the universe. So I sometimes say to someone who is struggling uh, with overcoming sexual sin and is is telling me, I don't know where to start. Here's where you can start. Pursue a life of self-sacrificial love. Put off the worship of self and put on the worship of God and practically take steps toward that by looking out for the needs of others above your own. When you're struggling with these thoughts, here's what you can do. Recognize the temptation to worship yourself and start looking around for someone who you can serve. The more self-centered you are, the more you will struggle with sexual temptation. I did say finally already, didn't I? But seriously, finally, uh, because this, you could connect to that last step, but put on Thanksgiving. Uh, If you're gonna go into battle, and that's what this is, it's a fight for holiness, you need to be prepared for the battle. And you need to be developing habits and practices which will enable you to fight the enemy. And this might be one of the most important pieces of practical counsel yet. It's found in Ephesians 4, 4. Paul says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. But now this is interesting. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And uh, Paul's talking about filthy talk there, but the phrase, let there be thanksgiving, refers to uh, verse four and the verse that goes before it, verse three, which is about sexual sin. And Paul's advice to those who are struggling with sexual sin and filthy talk is to put on thanksgiving. I don't know if you've ever said to somebody uh, who comes to you and says, I'm struggling with lust. Okay, here's how you fight it. Be thankful. But that's 
part of what Paul's doing there. Why? Why does Thanksgiving come into Paul's mind when he thinks about overcoming sexual sin? Well, why do we so often struggle with greed and sexual lust and things like that? It's because we're dissatisfied. Discontentment's at the root. And how do you fight discontentment? You fight discontentment through a lifestyle of enjoying what God has given you. So one of the things I would say to someone who's struggling with sexual lust and is really being beaten by it or by greed or covetousness, I would say you need to every day make a habit and at a specific time of the day, maybe just so you can learn to do this better, to make, you need to make a habit of either writing down or saying with your mouth a number of things that you're thankful for, which sounds simple, but isn't for most of us. We're really bad at being thankful. I mean, even now, if I ask you, what are you upset about in your life right now? You've probably got a, a hundred things. That, that list comes easy. But what's, what's it that's causing your heart to just well up and say, God, you're good? Maybe less. And you know, if you don't have those things, you're in a dangerous position because you do have those things. You do have reasons why you should be thankful. So if you don't have Thanksgiving coming out of your mouth, the problem's not with your circumstances, the problem's with your heart. And so what you need to do is develop a discipline of giving thanks to God and noticing how good God has been to you. And uh, can I just say that has to be one of the hardest things in the world to notice how good God's been. And I think one of the reasons why it's hard is because we're constantly wanting. We can't stop wanting. God made us that way and I'm thankful for it. Um, I'm glad I have once. It's just that those once got messed up at the fall. It's like because of the fall, the wanting part of me is broken, which means sometimes I want the wrong thing. Sometimes I want the right thing the wrong way. Sometimes I just keep wanting when I should be satisfied. And so because this is true, because I'm always wanting and because my wants are broken, it's foolish to think that I can overcome my wants simply by getting what I want. It doesn't work that way. If I get what I want, I won't really be thankful. I'll want more because my wants aren't working properly, which is why I'm so big on Thanksgiving because it's this habit of noticing and being grateful for what you do have and what you've been given. And that is one of the best way of dealing with broken desires. The more discontent and grumbling and complaining you are, the more likely you're going to have significant struggles with sexual temptation because ultimately a lot of sexual sin is basically about discontentment. You aren't satisfied with God's will for your life and you try to find satisfaction through sexual sin. But what I don't think a lot of people get is why aren't you satisfied? You're, you're not dissatisfied because you don't have enough. You're dissatisfied because you're not grateful for what God's already given you. And so the way you overcome that is by learning to enjoy and be thankful for what God has given you. And uh, specifically, if you're married, you might begin by just making a regular habit of thanking God for your spouse. And even thanking God for his good plan for sex. Because even this call to purity is really a demonstration of his grace. I mean, obviously there are a lot of people who can't understand why Christians are so serious about being sexually pure and they think maybe we don't like sex or something like that, when that's not the issue at all. It's that we trust God. We're just so grateful for all he's done for us. And because of that, we know that 
he has a good plan for our sexual relationships. And that because he has a plan, going outside of that plan is sin, which is bad for us. And more than that, it's serious because that sin is ultimately against God. And as believers, we actually have a special kind of fear for sexual sin because it seems to be especially blinding. It destroys people without them even knowing it. And that's what's happening in our world. And that's why it's so important that we make a commitment to fight for purity in our marriages, for our joy, for God's glory, and that we have a strategy, that we work at remembering the truth, remembering what we have to thank God about, remembering eternity, and remembering what God has to say about the importance of sexual purity in the marriage relationship.